As we sit, raised and waved the palm branches earlier, a reminder that it is Palm Sunday. It's Sunday in the church calendar when we remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But that's not the passage we're going to be looking at today or the story we're going to be looking at, but instead we're going to be finishing up our series on Paul's letter to the Romans that we started way back in September. And so we can all let out a big sigh and say, finally, we're done with the book of Romans. We could have gone a lot farther there. Obviously, there were a lot of passages we missed, skipped over, some that we didn't go into as much depth on. But we're finishing up today in preparation for what comes next week. And we celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when I was planning out this sermon series way back last summer and kind of mapping out which Sundays, what passages we would be doing, I knew this would be the passage we would be on for the day. I knew we would be in Romans 16 by today because I wanted to finish prior to Easter and prior to going on my sabbatical, but I didn't realize how appropriate in some ways the passage would be, that this is an appropriate passage as we prepare next week to celebrate God's power over sin, death, and the devil through His resurrection, but also that this week in some ways is a celebration of power, the power of the gospel. And the gospel, as we've been looking at it for the last number of months, these last six months has been the story of King Jesus. The gospel is this big story about Jesus who preexisted as the Son. He was sent by the Father. He came in the flesh to fulfill the promises of David. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He was seen by many witnesses. He's enthroned at the right hand of God as the ruling Messiah, and He has sent the Holy Spirit to bring His people about, to bring His rule about, and then He will come again as the final judge to rule. That's the gospel, this big story of King Jesus is. And so, you're wondering, how is this passage that we read related to the gospel? And you notice Mike skipped over a portion of it, and I asked him to, and he was probably thankful, because if you have a Bible and you are following along, you may have noticed there's this big, long list of names. Now, how many of you, when you're reading your Bible and you come to a big, long list of names, kind of skip down a little ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a lot of times because I'm like, oh, what am I doing? Why are all these names here? And it just seems kind of unimportant. But there is something, and I'll say not all the lists have deep meaning to them, but we also have to remember they were put there for a reason. There's some reason that the writer here, in this case, Paul, Matthew has a long list at the beginning of his gospel. If you read the Old Testament, the writers of Kings and Chronicles, they often have these big, long lists of names, or even in Genesis. There's entire almost chapters that are just lists of names and peoples and countries and all these things. You think, well, what's the significance? Like I said, not all have a big reason for being there. But what's helpful sometimes to ask is, why are they there? Why did the writers choose to include it? And so I think here Paul is writing this letter. So Paul, early follower of Jesus, has started churches all around the Mediterranean. One of them that sprang from his ministry, although he's never been there, is the church in Rome. And he's writing this letter to give them instructions and to encourage them to work out some divisions that are in their church. And there was a normal part. There was a letter writing format in the ancient world. I remember back in third grade with Miss Platt, we learned how to write a letter. And there was a way, the format, right, you know, when you, where you put your address and where you put the person's address and how you start the letter. We all learned you start a letter, dear, so-and-so, and then you kind of oftentimes maybe introduce yourself they don't know, and then at the end, maybe your final things, and you say, 
ancient letters also had a pattern. And one of the patterns often was at the end of the letter, they would send greetings, they would send instructions to people, because in the ancient world, it was much more difficult to write a letter. You didn't simply just jot on a piece of paper and stick it in an envelope and drop it in your mailbox and it magically ended up... So Paul's in Corinth, so for him to get a letter to Rome, which is a long ways away, he didn't simply stick it in the mailbox and expect the Roman post office to get it there. Now, official government mail went, they had carriers and stuff, but your average everyday citizen, they had to find somebody to take the mail. So now imagine you growing up and maybe your grandma lives three states away and you write your grandmother a letter. Now the task is to find somebody to take the letter for you. Not by car, but by walking, maybe by boat to, to visit your grandma and carry the letter. Well, if you go through all that work to get a letter there, you're thinking, well, there's maybe some other people there that I want to say hi to. And I don't have time to write all those letters. And it's a lot of work to write a letter because, again, in the ancient world, you didn't just go down to Meyer or to Walmart and buy a big pad of notebook paper. It was a complicated process to write a letter. And oftentimes, you weren't the individual writing the letter. Maybe you had a scribe who was writing the letter down and sending it off somewhere. And so, Paul would have been working, and even at the end of the letter, you heard that, where there was that letter that said, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter. So Paul would have been working and talking through this letter, and Tertius would have been the scribe who was working and writing a letter. So Paul has all these other people he wants to greet, and he writes it down in this letter, and he sends it off to them. Because he knows that when the letter arrives in Rome... Again, it's not going to be one person opening it up and reading it, but there's going to be somebody reading the letter to the congregation that's gathered. And all the people are going to hear it. And some of the people are lifted up, and when we, we're going to look at some of those names a little bit, they're going to be called out as, like, as positive examples of things. And I imagine some of them are like some of you. They would have been a little bit squeamish. I mean, many of you I know wouldn't like it if I started singling you out by name, even if it were something good. But here, Paul has this big, long list of things, and he's talking about them. He's commending them. They're partnered with Paul's, but I think he's making a deeper point. And so as we look at this list of names, I want you to imagine yourself sitting in one of these churches in Rome. And now, when we say church, they didn't have church buildings. They met probably in houses, houses probably of business people, because in the ancient world, many times your business and your house we're the same location. You didn't work somewhere else. You had your house, your whatever kind of business, whatever craftsman or craft that you did was probably in your house somewhere. And so in the house, there would have been maybe an atrium, kind of a waiting room for people visiting you. And that's where the churches would have gathered. And scholars estimate that maybe five, at least five, maybe eight house churches in Rome at this time. Groups of people who gathered together in a household to hear about who Jesus was, to eat a meal together, to gather and to worship. Now, these were not large gatherings. Fruitland Covenant Church would have been a megachurch in Rome. Maybe 15, 20 people in each of these house churches. Best estimate, Rome, believers in Rome, when Paul wrote this letter, maybe 200 total in all these eight churches. Maybe a few more, but not a big, I mean, there's not hundreds. So, as 
the letter is being read, many of these names would be recognized. They might be people sitting there, people you know, but you're also sitting there and hearing these great variety of names. You recognize some, but you also hear names and you recognize like, oh, that's a Greek name. Oh, that's a Jewish name. Oh, that's a Latin name. Maybe that's a slave name because slaves often were given a certain name and oftentimes when people were freed, they were given a name, a particular kind of name. So here you are, you're listening and you've been listening to this letter being read probably at least an hour or so, so far already, been going and you've been hearing this story of good news for all. The story that Paul has told that this gospel message is the story of King Jesus is a message for all, both Jews and Gentiles. It's a message of faith. It's a message of encouragement. And then he's concluding this and you're getting to the end. And then he says in verse six, chapter 16, verse one, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kenkrae. He describes her as a sister. It's not his physical sister. They didn't have the same parents, but a sister because the language of siblings was the picture of a new family created in Christ. Here's Phoebe. He calls her a sister. She's probably a Gentile convert based on her name, Phoebe, and she's a deacon. Notice, not a deaconess. That word does not exist in Scripture. There's one word used, a deacon, and Paul uses it through the New Testament as a word to describe an official role in the church. We don't know exactly what, but there's some official position she had in the church, which meant she was a, position, a person of character, a person of leadership. And when it says he commends her to you, that was kind of formal language in the ancient world again of she would have been the letter carrier, probably. So Paul, again, way off in Corinth, pens this letter, and then finds Phoebe, and Phoebe carries the letter from Cancre, which is right near a port near Corinth, to Rome. And also, as the letter carrier, she also would have likely performed the letter. In other words, she was likely the one that would have been the one who would have read the letter or perhaps even have memorized the letter and spoken it to the congregation. At least one of the congregations, maybe all of those different congregations, at least one of the households. And so it may have been that when Paul met with Phoebe in Corinth, and he would have gone over the letter with her, made sure she understood it, maybe even made sure she understood, well, I want you to slow down a little bit here. I want you to, I want you to look at that group of people during this moment in the message. Because remember, if we think back during Roman, there were times when he talked about the strong and the weak and different things. So you can imagine him kind of coaching Phoebe through this, saying, okay, at this moment, I want you to look at the group of Jewish people over here. At this moment, I want you looking at the Gentiles. At this moment, I want you to slow down. He may have even given Phoebe that ability to say, you know, if you look out at the group and they've got kind of that g g glazed look in their eyes like you all have right now, <laughs> like what is he talking about? What is the letter? Phoebe, I, I want you to just stop for a moment. I want you to explain a little bit more. I want you to maybe ad lib a little bit. Now, we know, this, is, this is speculation, but this is kind of the way that ancient letters often worked. She's also described as a benefactor of many, which meant she was a wealthy individual, probably a household owner. And a benefactor of many meant she was the one who supported and encouraged ministries. That's kind of that language of she was the one who put her money, her resources behind different ministries. So we go on and then we greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, a husband-wife team, or better yet, a wife-husband team because that's the way it's named, Priscilla and Aquila. And in fact, most of the times in the New Testament when these two are listed, it's Priscilla first, which means she had probably the position of honor. 
And they were tent makers, meaning they were people who they traveled and they did ministry, but they did it and they earned their own money. They weren't relying on benefactors. You can read more of their story if you want in Acts chapter 18, this whole story. But they've relocated a number of different times. They've moved households and now they're living in Rome and they're hosting a church in their house. They're co-workers with Paul. It goes on, greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Now, there's a name for the history books. The entire province of Asia, the first person to become a follower of Jesus. Imagine you're a missionary and you go to a country that's never heard about Jesus, and that first person gives their life to I mean, you would remember that person forever. And so here's a penitent, this Gentile man, the beloved, my dear friend. I, I like the language, my beloved, better. The first convert in Asia. It goes on, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you, probably a Jewish woman, a hard worker. And it goes on, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. They were in Christ. They knew Jesus before Paul did. We think of Paul, Paul. I mean, Paul was the king. This was people, Andronicus and Junia, apostles, ones who went and taught the good news of Jesus before Paul even did. He goes on, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Beloved co-workers, Gentiles, and the name suggests possibly slaves, possibly freed slaves. Goes on, greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Apollos. Apelles, sorry. This fidelity, he's faithful. And Aristobulus, it's his family members. So Aristobulus may have not even been a believer, but he had this household full of slaves, or free people, his family members maybe. Meet Herodian, greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Again, a fellow Jew in this household, those in the Lord. This picture of like, it's not just him, but his whole household. And probably an unbelieving Gentile man with his believing family. Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, who's those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Trophena and Trophosa, maybe Gentile, maybe Jewish women, possibly sisters, maybe slaves or free. Persis, a beloved hard worker, a Gentile woman. Again, maybe a slave or a freed person. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Do you hear that language again? A mother to me. There's this family language. These are people who are dear to Paul. Rufus, a Gentile man who may be the son of Simon of Cyrene. If you read the Gospel of Mark, this man that encounters Jesus as he's carrying his cross. Goes on, greet his syncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and other brothers and sisters with them. Again, a group of Gentile men, possibly slaves or freed person, members of a house church. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Philologus and, or Philologus, sorry, and Julia, possibly a Gentile couple. Nereus and a sister, Gentiles. Olympus, a Gentile man, and all the people with them. So we hear this big letter, and you think, what's Paul getting at? One, he's just singling out some people. He's singling out some people. He's, he's wanting to make sure they know he knows about what they're doing and hearing the ministry. But I think there's something else that we might draw from these names. 
Something else we might draw is Paul's bringing a close to this letter that points us back to all that's been going on in Rome. One is, as you were listening to it, there were nine women named in this letter, nine women named in this section, which means Paul valued and thought important the ministry of women. He saw them as important. This was the ancient world, the patriarchal world, where women often didn't get mentioned at all, but Paul chooses to name nine out of the 26 names as women. One's the letter carrier. One's named as an apostle. One's named as a hard worker. They're called his sisters, called his mother. They have key roles. But I told you what they were. They were Gentiles. They were Jews. They were slaves. And even as you heard the names, there were all these different people. They were a diverse group. They were Jew and Gentile, slave and free, women, men, strangers, different social status. And that's significant. It's significant because what it's telling us is that the gospel, this good news, brings diverse people together. That there's this wide range of people, people who would never have a meal together because that's what they would have done. And that's why we do, as potluck, every Sunday we celebrate communion is because for the ancient world, for the early church, communion wouldn't have been a little tiny cup and a wafer. It was a meal. It was a potluck of sorts. People brought food together, and they ate a meal together. They ate the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's snack, the Lord's Supper. They ate together. Sorry. <laughs> they're eating together, and they're enjoying these meals together. But nowhere else in the Roman world would slaves and freed come together. Nowhere else would Jews and Gentiles have sat together. Nowhere else would the rich and the poor have come together. But because of the good news of Jesus, this group of people is brought together. And so even as the people of Rome were sitting and listening to this letter, and they're hearing these names, and they're hearing these descriptions, they're saying, this is a picture of the gospel. This is the picture of the good news that brings people together. And there's a command in here. We, we often talk about, well, we need to follow the Bible, right? Chapter 16, verse 16 says what? Greet one another with a holy kiss. How many of you did that this morning? Probably not, right? But the point is, and it's, I'm not suggesting that that's what Paul is saying, that this is a command for all time. But what does that imply if you're imagining the ancient world, even if you know nothing about ancient Near Eastern practices or the practices of Rome, if someone encouraged someone to greet someone with a kiss, what would that suggest to you? Love, Love affection. He's saying, show affection to one another. He's not saying, well, I want you to sit at the table together, but don't talk to one another. He's not saying, well, you come together and there's all these different people and you don't have to like each other, but you need to be together. He's saying, no. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Show affection for one another. Demonstrate this love for one another. This gospel brings diverse together people together. And notice something else in the language that was used. He often referred to them as what? Co-workers. They each came with a gift. Each contributed. Paul is saying that he didn't do this alone. That there were all these people. You heard Andronicus and Junia. They were there before he was. You had Priscilla and Aquila, whose house one of the churches in Rome was. Paul had never been to Rome. It's very well possible that either Andronicus and Junior or Priscilla and Aquila were the ones who started the church in Rome. There were Christian believers in Rome 
not because of Paul, but because of these other people who had created and brought together these churches who had spread the good news of Jesus and gathered churches all around and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. Paul didn't do it on his own. He did it with all these people, these co-workers that went along with him. And that's why, if I go back to the beginning of what I said, it's like I didn't think about this message in context of the timing of where we would be. And then I start a sabbatical in a week from now. I'll be here next Sunday, but after that I begin a sabbatical. And somebody think, well, how's the church, what's going to happen to the church? The same thing's going to happen to the church that happened to the church in Rome. Paul says there are plenty of co-workers. There's a whole group of people sitting here who are my co-workers in Christ. My co-workers in Christ. And this is what he's saying is that Paul is saying the church in Rome doesn't depend on him. Now, I don't think the church here depends on me, but sometimes we can get that impression that without the pastor, where would we be? We'd be perfectly fine without the pastor. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, but that the, the church doesn't require that, that there are coworkers, that each and every one of you has gifts and talents and contributes to the good news and the work of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. That the work of the church is not done by one, but it's done by all. And Paul is telling and reminding the people in the church of Rome of that very thing. He's talking later, he talks earlier in the letter about his desire to come and to encourage them and preach. But he's also reminding them that even if he's not there, the work of God continues. Even when I am gone on a sabbatical, the work of God will continue because of you who are my co-workers in Christ. He trusted them, and I trust you. And he talked about a diverse group of people living together in peace. And there was this line in there about the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, which is kind of an con interesting contrast, isn't it? We think the God of peace. And what's the God of peace doing? Crushing Satan under his feet. Doesn't sound much like a God of peace, does it? But, but I want us to think about what's happening is these people together are living together in peace. Remember we said they're Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, women and men, all gathered together. And Paul has been talking about the need for them to live in harmony, to live in peace together. And part in the language he uses often, he describes them as being in the Lord. They're connected to one another. They're people in whom Christ dwells who follow the pattern of the life of the crucified Messiah. And I think what he's getting at is these people in Rome living together, all these diverse people together, coming together are a picture of Satan being crushed. Because Satan's desire is to separate, to divide, to cause us to go in our pictures. That's the evil that goes on in our world right now. We live in our tribes, we want to separate, and God brings people together. And as we come together, as we come together across all these diverse groups, just as the people in Rome, we demonstrate the good news of the gospel, and it's a crushing blow to Satan. Douglas Herring says it this way, these greetings reflect how the cosmic, world-historical reality of the Messiah's sovereign reign of justice spreads on the earth and throughout the empire. It spreads through ground-level networks of newly created bonds of affection in and among communities created by God's justice. These greetings reflect how the cosmic, world-historical reality of the so, of the Messiah's sovereign reign of justice spreads on the earth. In other words, what he's saying is like this 
greeting these, all these different people, that's a reflection of God's justice, His righteousness at work, bringing all these people together. The gospel, Paul reminds us, is ordinary people carrying an extraordinary message. And he concludes it at the end with this doxology, which is where we're going to include. So he concludes in verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you, in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, we're strengthened through the good news. If we were to go all the way back to chapter 1 of Romans, he talks about the gospel of what? The power of God. So this good news is a strengthening thing to bring justice and righteousness to all who trust Him, Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and the nations, which is maybe a better way to say it. So if we have Jews and the nations, and the nations are everybody who are Jews, so we have Jews and the nations, what's that mean? Everybody. And it's a proclamation of Jesus Messiah. That's what the letter's been all about. His lineage, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His ongoing presence, His sovereign reign. Jesus is God's justice. Jesus is God's righteousness. Jesus is the good news. And he goes on, he says, according to the revelation of mystery, that Jesus reveals who God is. Jesus reveals our distortion. He reveals our sinfulness, but he also reveals God's right-making justice. And he reveals the mystery of Israel as purpose and is chosen as a divine people. Then he goes on, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles, all the nations might come to the obedience that comes from faith. These prophetic writings, the arrival of the Messiah opens up the scriptures. According to the command of the eternal God, God is the source, the power, and the reality of good news. Again, Douglas Herrick, I like the way he said it, he said, God is the subject of Romans in both senses of the word. It is a letter about God, and it is a letter through which God speaks His powerful word of justice. Romans is a letter about God, but it's also a letter through which He speaks. For faithful obedience, that God brings justice through faithful obedience of Messiah Jesus. So might all might render faithful obedience to God through Messiah. And He concludes this way, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. The only wise God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God which is foolishness to the world. Who would think that the way to demonstrate the goodness and the love of God would be for someone to die on a cross? Who would think that the wisdom of God would be to bring Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, women and men, rich and poor all together to be this band of people? Who would think that wisdom would be humility? Who would think that wisdom would be servant? Who would think that wisdom would be giving up your life for the sake of others? But that's the only wise God, because His wisdom is greater than ours. A wisdom that we can't understand apart from Jesus. It's foolishness to the world's ideas of rationality, of justice and power. And it says, to Him be the glory. Now, in some sense, this is where the letter ends, but the story doesn't because the church of Rome continues, and they continue on this group of diverse people who've heard the good news of Jesus, the good news that though we are sinners, God has brought us together through the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus. 
that He calls all people to Him, that the only way to salvation is through faith and faith in Christ alone, but that this invitation is open to all, and that we live out this good news through gathering together, and they're living it out there in Rome as they gather together as a diverse people. But it didn't stop there. The good news of Jesus spread to the rest of Europe and eventually to the rest of the world and eventually to a group of people sitting here at Fruitland Covenant Church. And so to us, the same message and the same mission is given, to live out the good news, to be God's good news people, to demonstrate the justice and the righteousness of God in all that we do through Him and through the power of His Spirit. And in all that we do to bring glory to God. And so as we prepare to celebrate communion together as a bunch of ordinary people announcing extraordinary news, we come together and we proclaim as we come to the table as all of us come, women, men, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational levels, all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds, we come together to proclaim the good news of Jesus, that all are welcome at the table. We come together to proclaim the good news of Jesus, that we are all sinners, but that through Christ's death and resurrection, we are all forgiven. We come together to proclaim that He is the only way to salvation. And so as we come and as we eat at the table, we proclaim that good news. Jesus said we proclaim His death until He comes, and His death is what has made us a people. His death is where we find forgiveness. And so as we come to the table, we are good news people, ordinary people, proclaiming extraordinary good news. Amen.